0: Thank you for downloading the Walks Through Time podcast. In this edition, we join the Kenley Revival Team for a guided walk around the airfield RAF Kenley, which is still an active airfield. Although these days, rather than fighter aircraft, it's gliders, much more peaceful and quiet, and anyone can go for a walk around. Originally recorded as part of the Wings Museum podcast, this walk is entitled Voices from the Past.
1: My name's Linda Duffield. I'm legacy officer for the Kenley Revival Project and welcome along this evening. We're just going to be looking at quotations from memoirs and biographies, autobiographies from the service personnel that served here during World War II. Kenley has been an RAF station now for 102 years and it is still an active airfield, which is why we have the fence there. When the gates are open, you can go through and walk at your leisure, at your own risk. It's still an emergency landing ground, but at your own risk you can walk across. When the gates are closed, that means there are gliding operations in progress and you should stay off. Obviously, the most famous part of Kenley's history is the Battle of Britain, the part it played in the Battle of Britain as a sector station in 11 Group Fighter Command. In the run-up to the outbreak of hostilities... Things were in a pretty dire position here. We had Philippe Joubert, who was the head of fighting area before fighter command was even invented, and he was based here. They used to do exercises up here in like the mid-30s where they'd try and do kind of command and control exercises from here via Uxbridge and get seeing if they could get fighters in the air and what have you. They didn't even have their own dedicated phone system. So they would have some little old lady on a switchboard somewhere along the route, and if she pulled the plug, the whole of fighter command went down. And obviously this was absolutely insupportable. So eventually they got a grant from the government to have their own dedicated phone system, and thank goodness for Lord Dowding, by the time we get to the outbreak of hostilities, we have well-trained pilots, modern aircraft, just about our airfields are ready... Tactically, we're pretty woeful, let's be honest. The Luftwaffe had been practising on the front line of the Spanish Civil War before they got here, and they'd already sort of had operations through Poland, France, Belgium and everywhere else. We were pretty raw and our tactics were outdated, but obviously they made a sterling effort and we had, you know, because we had the command and control and the other things in place, we did pretty well out of it with a bit of luck. The first quote I'm going to read you is from Philip Joubert. And he says, It must be realised that the Air Force that won the Battle of Britain was originally trained on biplanes. It thought 240 miles an hour rather fast. And a climb to 10,000 feet in seven minutes, quite a good performance. So... You've got to think, all this technology that is coming in, radar, monoplane fighters and all that, it's incredibly new. It's at the cutting edge of what's going on. It hasn't been tried and tested. Nobody really knows how it's all going to work. It just hangs together. And the Battle of Britain is the first major conflict that is fought almost entirely in the air. It was all new. It was was a new thing. The other guy I'm going to read to you from here is a ground crew from 615 Squadron who was here during the Battle of Britain. His name is actually Frank Hunt, but in the true tradition of military humour, they christened him Mike, and that is the, the name that he has always been known to history as. My own recollection of that time was of an overwhelming sense of comradeship amongst all personnel involved, including all the pilots, ground crews and ancillary staff with whom we worked. It was a period of hard work and long hours for we service personnel and for our pilots, many of whom we had become friends with, it was to be a most daunting challenge. We were to witness the transformation of carefree youths into serious adults who were ready to kill or be killed the period had been called and truly was a summer for heroes. So those are those two gentlemen. Philippe Joubert, he commentated for the BBC during the war years and um, he'd come from the army. He was really old school. He'd fought in the Great War and all the rest of it. OK, shall we move on around to the... We'll go that way. We'll go that way. Well,
0: we'll cut across the <laughs> I think It's a nicer breeze now.
1: It is lovely isn't it just, I love this summer kind of the evening up here. just hoping we can get round before it gets dark. <laughs> That's my only thing I just want to get get back to base before we end up really stabling around. Okay, here we are. We're we're in one of Kenley's blast pens. We've just come from the one by the Tribute. The blast pens, the Perry, and quite a lot of installations for storing ammunition, fuel, oil, and so on and so forth were put in literally in the last few months before the breakout of hostilities. The airfield was closed and all this concrete runways and everything were put in at the express orders of Lord Dowding. Kenley had been out of action in a couple of winters prior to the outbreak of war and Dowding realised that Kenley was of such strategic importance that that would not be able to be allowed to happen. So he ordered that the runways were concreted, that the Perry was put in and that 12 blast pens were put up around the edge. Obviously the idea of a blast pen is that you disperse your aircraft around the airfield rather than keeping them all in a hangar where one hit will finish the whole squadron. If you disperse them around, it's less chance of them being hit and the earth revetments will protect them from blasts coming from the side. Some of them still have their central spine walls which protect the aircraft. If one is hit, then it won't start a chain reaction onto the other one. You've seen they all had the shelters across the back there which were used by ground crew for storage and and they used to sleep in them overnight during raids and so on. There were also several dispersal huts around each blast pen where where they would keep flying kit and rest and recuperate. I sort of wanted to talk here about the Hardest Day. We had the commemorations on the 18th of August this year and I suspect some of you were up here for the flypast. Yeah, it was lovely, wasn't it? That, also known as the Sunday lunchtime raid came after a sort of period of ominous quiet while the Luftwaffe kind of figured out what to do after Eagle Day, after Aldertag had had failed. They weren't really sure what they were going to do, so they launched this massive attack on the 18th of August. Three major assaults and lots of smaller actions. It's called the hardest day because the most aircraft were damaged that day. It's not the most personnel lost, People are arguing about whether it's the hardest day or not to this day, but about 100 German aircraft were lost and about 136 British aircraft were lost, so it was a day of great losses all round. The guy in charge here was Wing Commander Thomas Prickman, 38 years old. He had 64 squadron and 615 squadron under his command, 12 Spitfires, 22 Hurricanes, 600 airmen, 100 airwomen, 100 AA gunners and infantrymen and 30 officers. So this is something that I always have trouble getting over to people, is how busy Kenley was. There were a lot of people up here. It was a very busy station. There was activity, people, aircraft, everything coming and going. And especially that day, they had to do a survival scramble to get everything in the air. Our squadrons were scrambled to the south. One sixty-four were patrolling high overhead and... They were too high to intercept the raid by the 9th Staffel, Kampgeschwader 76, which came in very, very low from the south. Being the Luftwaffe, they had quite a lot of war reporters and photographers on board their aircraft for this assault to witness the great victory of the Luftwaffe. And... um, one of them was a guy called Rolf von Pebble who took these amazing pictures of that raid and he actually we have a written account from him detailing what he saw as he ca- as he came in and this is this is this raid coming in he said we cross the coast and descend low over the channel and keep watch for fighters haze lies over the water droplets stream from the cockpit windows soon the quiet will end We see the coast shimmering through the fog. Ascend a few metres higher and then the English coast becomes clearly visible and very close. I photograph what I can. 600 metres to the left are two early warning boats which we leave alone. They signal us and when we don't reply we assume they're sending a radio report notifying their flak batteries of uninvited guests. We are already over steep cliffs. Now it can begin. That is the approach to Kenley. And there's a lot of witnesses down there on the coast that watch this raid come in very, very low. This is Margaret Birch. She said, we just stood and looked down on the... She's looking down on them, they're so low. We stood and looked down on the pencil-like planes creeping along the South Downs, with the South Downs as a backdrop... They were in sight for about a minute. No markings were visible, but there was something sinister in both their appearance and behaviour. And I think this is the the quote that I've got from probably about the most famous person. This is Virginia Woolf, an extract from her diary from the 19th of August. And she says, Monday 19th of August, 1940. Yesterday, 18th, there was a roar. Right on top of us they came. I looked at the plane like a minnow, at a roaring shark. Over they flashed, three I think, olive green, then pop, 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 German. Again, pop, pop, pop over Kingston. Said to be five bombers hedge hopping on their way to London, the closest shave so far. And in fact, they were machine gunning the high streets and everything as they came up following the railway line to Kenley. So how many German aircraft were in... Only nine. Nine? Only nine. And that, they, the thing is, there was supposed to be a raid coming in, a large raid, a high-altitude raid coming in, that was going to flatten the airfield before they even got there. But because of a haze over France, they had a job assembling their formations and everything, and they were de- delayed only by about five minutes. But it gave a chance that the 9th the Staffel got over the channel before them. They were expecting to come up over the hangars there and find Kenley in Flames already. Yeah. And in fact, they found the airfield completely intact and all guns trained in their direction because the K3 Observer Station down at Beachy Head, the Royal Observer... Well, they weren't the Royal Observer. The Observer Corps had already alerted fighter command, that they were on their way. So and there, they there were just nine bombers? There were just nine, nine. for that raid. Five but minutes bombers. after they came over... There were no fighters? They were yeah, they, they, they didn't have a fighter escort, I don't think. The larger oh. raids that came after did. I may be wrong about that, but I think the larger raids that came after did, but the, the ninth Staffel came on their own. They, okay. were, they were a cracked, low-level bomber they squadron. They came from somewhere in France, didn't yes. they? Yeah. yeah, just north of Paris. So the main target was Kenley. It for wasn't. This, it wasn't way. London. No, not no. For, no they, they, wanted, they were, they were trying out. to knock out Fighter Command. Yep. They, okay. they were targeting the the sector stations, Biggin Hill, Kenley, Hornchurch, North Wield. They thought Ford and Thorny Island were were RAF fighter stations, but they only had. Very high-level reconnaissance photos to go from. Mm-hmm. So they'd seen single-engine aircraft on the tarmac at Ford and Thorny Island and thought they were fighter stations. They weren't. And they also went for the radar station at Polling. So, okay. um, yeah, that was, yep. that was what they were after. Yeah. should we should we move on can i just point yes. out this
2: road was closed during yes, that time because it there's pens indeed. on the other side there
1: are yes there yeah. are indeed sir. They're they're, they're they're on private land now but one of them still has its spine wall and i think it's pretty intact mm-hmm, okay. so yes they are there are still pens on the other side of, of hazenne and halane certainly was shut for the duration of hostilities I uh, was
2: around here at that time
1: yes mm. yeah well, you can tell us then. Yeah. you can you do
0: So you
2: remember it all, then? Oh, yes, I remember it
0: all. We're
1: going to go around the back here and go and sit in front
0: of the... Um. So presumably you were quite a young man at the (laughs) war. Yes,
2: yes. well, actually, my cousin, who was 15 years older than me, by the name of William Hatley, was actually here on that very day. All right. Yes, and uh, he was sent to the Far East... (laughs) And after that time, mm. he was in the Royal Air Force, uh, ground crew. And um, my father was also in the Royal Air Force, in the whole of the war. And believe it or not, when I was 18, I was called up under the National Service. Yeah. And I served a bit longer than that. And I was also posted to the Malayan emergency, right. as it was called. Mm. Yes, it was called an emergency because, um, rather than a war against the Chinese Cham- communists, because the insurances on our property there would be invalid. Right. <laughs> but we got a campaign medal. Wants to come
1: along a little bit, come, come round and, and, and spread out and what have you. This is our rifle range. It was absolutely vital. Shooting, obviously, is, is a vital skill in wartime. And this is a small arms, 50-yard range. It would have had the targets where you can see the lump in the ground. And there was obviously sand all along there to catch anything that went astray. There were still bullets lodged in the wall up there. And I think generations of school children around here have delighted in sifting through the sand there. Certainly my son has had a good time but be very careful whatever you find in the ground here could well be live so um, yeah, watch yourselves Churchill said in June 1940 every man in RAF uniform ought to be armed with something a rifle, a tommy gun, a pistol a pike or mace it must be understood by all ranks that they are expected to fight and die in defence of their airfields so you can see this idea of shooting was was considered vital by that point however air gunnery was something that the the RAF hadn't really trained for in the 30s they didn't really put a great deal of importance by that. They were all thinking more about formation flying and, and beautiful aerobatics and the air pageants at Hendon and having their wives and girlfriends down at the weekend and everything. It was, you know, They used to say it was the greatest flying club in the world. And so you get this extraordinary situation where we, where we get to wartime and there, the pilots are going into battle having never fired their guns and really not having much of a clue about deflection shooting and all of this kind of stuff which became vital later on. This is John Alexander Johnny Kent, DFC, AFC, Virtuti Militari. He was the guy who led 303 squadron very famously from Northolt and he also served at Kenley. Many of the new boys never fired their guns at all until they went into action for the first time, a sobering thought when one considers the task before them. It was a great tribute to their grit and determination that they carried themselves into the violent battles of the next few months and inflicted the damage they did with virtually no practice on air firing at all. One wonders what the results might have been if it had been possible to thoroughly train every pilot before he went into action. So, yeah, and he'd never flown a Hurricane before, and he had to fight to get a few rounds of ammunition in his gun so that he could just go and try it out. Because he said, I've never never fired a wing-mounted gun before. And they were all like, are you crazy, wanting to go off and practise that? Anyway, normally here I talk about people who are great shots and you know, who have a wonderful ability with air-to-air firing or your you know, aces and what have you. Today, I'm going to talk about someone who really wasn't much of a shot at all, to be fair to him, which is Bachi Achille. He served here in the 30s and he came back again as station commander during the war years in 1942. And he was an outstanding pilot. He had broken the airspeed record in the Schneider Trophy races of 1929. He was part of the RF's high-speed flight. He was an absolute natural from the day he got into a cockpit. He was one of twins. His brother David was also a pilot. And Dowding met them when they were ten years old and met them later as they came through Cramwell and what have you. And Dowding said on the Achilles, he said, I regarded them as eccentric geniuses and I was always glad to have either or both of them under my command, which is pretty good going. However... Bacci's a really great pilot, right? He's a fantastic pilot. He comes here as station commander. And he had his own personal Spitfire, but he wasn't au fait with them. He hadn't had a lot of hours on Spitfires. His days were the biplane days. And he had absolutely no experience of air-to-air firing at all. However, he did decide he was going to have a go on his own. Owen Hardy of 72 Squadron says on the particular day we were returning from the sweep in which Kenley Wing also took part, Batchy decided he would take on the Luftwaffe all on his own with a little bit of help from the operations controller at Kenley. And he says Batchy was a wonderful pilot, but clearly the game he was now playing was out of his league in both age and experience. This is Batchy actually's own account of what happened on the 26th of May 1942, when he went out on his own and decided he was going to have a pop at the Luftwaffe. I was just starting to orbit to the right when I caught sight of a Fokker Wolf 190 right behind me and two others a bit further back and above. I was too late. I started an immediate turn in the opposite direction, but was cold meat. I heard his cannon strikes and saw my dashboard splinter. For an unconscionable number of seconds, I seemed to be receiving the full blast of four cannons. I saw everything and heard everything, but in the excitement of the moment felt nothing, although in fact I was hit down my throttle arm by an explosive shell. The armour plate behind my seat made a noise like a drum, but gave me full protection. The engine packed up. The cockpit started to smoke and I soon had no control with my elevators. My wheels dropped as my hydraulics packed up and the aircraft turned into a right-hand spin. I realised I'd have to bail out and tried to send a mayday call, but not surprisingly, my radio was hit. I slid back the canopy, unstrapped myself and tried to raise my trunk to get my head and shoulders out into the slipstream. To my concern, I was held a few inches from my seat by some unseen obstruction. I tried repeatedly but of no avail and I forlornly came to the inevitable conclusion that I was for it. So he managed to free himself from the cockpit and got kind of blown out and found himself sitting on the wing. Rather extraordinary and then was thrown backwards and collided with the tailplane. He managed to escape, came down on his parachute into the channel and he was rescued. Pieces of shell had torn through his shoulder, down his left arm and ripped the flesh from a finger. He was treated at Dover Hospital and then he underwent surgery at East Grinstead. Years later, through a conversation with uh, WGG Duncan Smith, another aspect of the story came to light involving David, his twin brother. He said, "'A strange thing happened that day. "'At the precise moment when I was hit in the arm, "'my brother David, who was sitting in his office at Fairwood Common, "'shouted to his adjutant to get through to fighter command "'and ask the duty controller in the operations room whether I was OK. "'He was told that, as far as was known, "'I was in the pink at Kenley, minding my own business. "'Find out for sure,' my brother insisted. "'I think group captain actually has had a serious accident "'and hurt his arm rather badly.' 20 minutes later, the sector controller at Kenley telephoned David and told him I was overdue, missing from a reconnaissance flight over the Channel. So, another little weird twin moment. David was killed flying a jet in the 50s. Richard Batchy, actually, survived the war and died aged 66 in Oldershot. Shall we move on? <coughs>
3: A great friend of mine, Julian Alterton, who flew Hornets in the a dive-bombing, oh,
2: yes. and said the great delight in them, and he loved
3: them, was the fact that the propellers on the Mosquito were both rotated in the same direction, mm. which had given such bad torque steer, and the thrust on the rudder, whereas the Hornet were controvertating with respect to each other. Oh. Loved it. Yeah, yeah. And one day they were told they were all to be scrapped, because the humidity had... Destroyed the adhesive. Right. So they're all put on the scrap dump to be burnt. Yeah. He climbed over, cut the number out of his, and it's in his study to this day. Excellent. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. What a wonderful evening this is, as well.
0: Well, it's nice to see so many people coming to hear these stories again, isn't it?
3: It is, yes. My parents, Dad was a parish priest. He was in the Locklands in the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Mum. Was in a reserved occupation, but she was a, a Red Cross nurse in the evenings. And she tells so many tales from a girl of 17 or 18, really. Mm. People lying up waiting to be treated. But a particular lady who said, I'll oh, wait my turn, dear, who'd actually had her legs blown off. <laughs> okay. And who'd, who died. Yeah, yeah, And uncle was in the AFS, an auxiliary fire service firefighters, so... Would have been kept busy. Very close to home, yes. Yes. And here we are today, aren't we lucky? Yes.
0: <laughs> well, one of the best things about Kenley is the fact that it's still here full stop, really. It hasn't been encroached upon in the way that uh, many other places have.
3: No, it's it's extraordinary. It's sad that there are a few peripheral things that aren't properly preserved, but the the ambience of the place is really, isn't it? yes exactly it's wonderful well friend I've got the book the hardest day, which is really good, mm. and so has a friend. but one day we were in a second-hand bookshop in Horsham, and he picked up a copy of it, which was an earlier edition to cut a very, very long story short, opened it up, and there was an autograph on a visiting card from a pub in Sussex that we through checking out on the internet was Douglas bardas Wow. <laughs> Absolutely and the person in the
0: bookshop hadn't thought of looking? It was a charity shop.
3: Wow. It was literally a pile of old books. Wonderful find. That is a good find. So treasured, it's gone to a good home. Inspiration to us all, yeah. <laughs> OK,
1: folks, obviously this is the business end of the airfield. All the buildings were up this end and the hangars would have been just over here behind you there they'd been here since 1917 when the airfield first started I think three hangars were removed just before the outbreak of of war because they were surplus to requirement leaving three in an empty shed during wartime on the 18th of August two of those hangars were destroyed leaving only one They didn't have many aircraft in them. Everything carried on as normal because obviously the aircraft were in the air or dispersed around the airfield. So although we did lose a few hurricanes on the ground, not that much fundamental damage was caused by the hangars going. However, obviously it was pretty horrendous. Nine people were killed here, you know... That sounds appalling to us now. However, down at Ford on the same day, on the 18th of August, they lost 25 because they were taken by surprise and 75 injured. So although it sounds dreadful to lose... The official statistics is nine. I think there were 11. One died quite a bit later, and there was an army guy as well who who doesn't really get counted because he wasn't RAF, weirdly, but hey. Um, And They always kind of... They seem to forget him. But anyway... This is a fictional thing. There's a thriller writer called Hammond Innes. I don't know whether any of you ever heard of him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He served as an anti-aircraft gunner here and wrote a book called Attack Alarm after the war ended. And there's in his accounts of the raids, it's quite obvious, if you're familiar with the 18th of August raid, that what he is describing is the hardest day here. So this isn't a witness account as such it's a piece from a thriller however i would argue that the only thing that makes this possible is the fact that this guy was actually here firing the guns on the 18th of august he says the chaos of the square was indescribable it was bounded on three sides by blazing buildings they dropped incendiaries as well as high explosives The firefighting equipment was quite inadequate for the task. The smoke was blinding. It filled my eyes to choking point and made them run. Men and girls were running everywhere. Some were screaming. The place reeked with pain and nervous exhaustion. I passed a dugout shelter which had been hit. They were getting the dead and wounded out. I felt slightly sick and was convinced I could smell blood. There was broken glass everywhere and my back ties riding a bicycle was soon flat. Ambulance and ARP fire pumps were beginning to come in from districts around. I reached the educational without being knocked down. There was nothing left of it. The station hospital had been hit too. It was just a pile of rubble with one wall standing and the front door upright in solitary splendour. A girl in a torn WAF uniform staggered through the ruins and came out by the front door. She closed it carefully behind her. Her face and hair were coated with a thick dust of powdered masonry and her hands were bleeding. Now, the hospital block was sort of in this area over here and was hit on the hardest day. There was a crescent-shaped air raid shelter just outside it and the impact of the bombs made both ends of that shelter collapse the people who were in the centre of it survived and were dug out, but the people on the ends were killed, including the station doctor, Dr Robert Cromie, who was an Irishman and had been the local GP before the war. He was very much loved. I'll show you a picture of him in a second. This is another little piece from from that incident, from a WAF called Lilius Barr, who wrote down her memories... Someone called out that the sick quarters had had a direct hit, so I sped in that direction. I remember running over the hummocky grass. There were lots of people badly shaken sitting about. The doctor had been killed, and Mary Coulthard, one of two WAF sickbay attendants, was badly injured. She had the most enormous cut on her thigh. I had never seen anything like it. She had been thrown onto a steel helmet, which had sliced through her leg. She and the other attendant were smiling, though, because they had applied a tourniquet which had worked. And I smiled too. I, who, under normal circumstances, could faint at the sight of someone's cut finger. We tied a label onto her before she was taken to hospital. So, yeah, pretty bad times. Let's move on. Okay, this is a very short one. I know a lot of you will know Victor Beamish Avenue, and I always stand here and talk about Victor Beamish. He was an Irish pilot, very much loved by those who served with him. He was killed in March 1942 while he was station commander here. This is sort of surmise and hearsay, but there were a lot of question marks about overclaiming during the time that Paddy Finnegan was here another great Irish ace. And some sources think that Victor Beamish was brought in to find out whether the claims could be authenticated or not, whether they were legitimate or whether they were just spurious. Victor Beamish was a sportsman, a rugby player. He he was one of four very butch Irish brothers who were all in the RAF. All of them were pilots except Cecil, who was a dentist. Um, (laughs) When Victor Beamish was killed it was a real shock to the whole station and this is the shortest quote I'll give you on this, on this thing but Victor Beamish once said I cannot send these boys to do anything I wouldn't do myself and he insisted on flying when he should have been, he was old enough that he should have been flying. A desk. You know, he shouldn't have been in the air at all. Hawkeye Wells was on a 24-hour pass in London when Victor Beamish was shot down, and he said, when I got back, I just could not believe it. I was absolutely shattered and felt his loss deeply. I felt that if I had not gone to London, he might not have been killed. He was such a fine chap. And he actually went out looking for Beamish the following day. He went out over the channel to see if there was any trace of him. No trace of him was found. Trafford Lee Mallory, who had ascended to high command by that point, said... Victor Beamish was an outstanding personality of fighter command. It was impossible to keep him on the ground even when employed on the staff. He established his claim to rank with the greatest fighter pilots of all time. An idealist without any thought of self, he was an inspiring station commander. He will be best remembered for his magnificent and infectious courage as a brilliant and fearless leader of the fighter pilots whose interests were so dear to him and who loved him so well. So that is Victor Beamish. Okay. Okay. this is Portcullis Field. The little building that we passed is the Portcullis Club, which is run by the Royal Air Force Association. It is the oldest building still existent on the airfield, dating from 1917, and it used to extend out as far as the flagpole. But obviously... I mean, you have to imagine all the trees weren't grown up in those days, and that was a bit of an obstruction for aircraft landing on that. So they demolished half of it to kind of make, it, make life a bit easier for the poor pilots. Also, in the corner right over there, there is a blacker bombard pit behind the old squash court. A blacker bombard is an anti-tank weapon, and it would have faced down the bank as part of the ground defences of the airfield. Blacker bombards are kind of spigot mortar. They were invented in the 30s and no-one had taken much notice of them until they found every anti-tank gun left in France and then they put them into quick production at the behest of Churchill. But I want to talk about the squash court, which is still standing and over in that corner there. It became very important in 1943... Because concerns were raised about the fitness of the airmen serving at Kenley, who were having a rather cushy life of it, let's face (laughs) it. And, you know, plans were being hatched for the invasion of Europe. And Group Captain McBrien, who was in charge at that point, wanted more emphasis on drill and on ground discipline so that everything would function smoothly when the airfield went mobile. Unfortunately, all our pilots were heavily committed on bomber escort duties at that time, and there wasn't really any time for a formal exercise programme and square bashing and all this rubbish. So what they wanted was competitive sports that could give vigorous exercise in a short period of time, like squash. So this emphasis on playing squash and on this sort of vigorous exercise came really to the fore. A Canadian pilot called Hugh Godfrey wrote about our squash court in his memoir. He became wing commander here after the famous Johnny Johnson, who was the highest scoring allied ace of World War II, left. And this is what he wrote in Lucky 13. Each permanent station had squash courts and we all began to play. I knew how to handle a tennis racket having been trained by my father. As a university student, he'd been almost good enough to make the Dutch national tennis team. Bill McBride soon taught me that squash was a different game, thrashing me consistently whenever I played him. After learning something about the game from him, beating Johnny Johnson should have been a piece of cake. What Johnny lacked in ability, he made up for by the furious application of his competitive nature. He was all over the court running into you or stepping on your feet. It was dangerous to get in front of him. You either got hit in the arse with the ball or (laughs) crowned with his racket at the end of his follow-through. If he missed the ball with his racket, he would just as likely do a little dance and try and kick it up with his toe or heel. The only thing I didn't see him try was heading the ball. I found him a hard man to beat. <laughs> uh, uh. So there's that's Johnny Johnson in 1944 after D-Day in France, and that's Hugh Godfrey, um, our two adversaries on the squash court over there in the corner. How
2: long was he here for, Johnny Johnson? Yes. It was
1: about six months. They went down think... to Headcorn and Lashenden during that time and before they went mobile they kind of had a practice run. The squadrons went down to Lashenden and camped for the summer oh. in 1943 for, for about a month or so. But no aircraft here then? No, no, they were kind of still a Kenley squadron and all the you know, command structures went down with them. But it was all in preparation for going mobile and yeah. to give them the experience of packing up all their kit, moving out and living in, living under canvas. Yeah. Yeah. Creep on. What <laughs> <laughs> on. a beautiful 1932 officer's mess. Currently... Uh, in the process of being redeveloped, the plans look great, but as you can see, it has suffered several catastrophic fires and it is a Grade 2 listed building, so I'm a little bit sore about that, I have to say. Can I make a point there? Yes, of course.
2: With regard to Officer's Mess. Yes, Um not all of the pilots were commissioned officers. No, they Some were just were. sergeants. Yes, yes, they were. And, at age, and the age of 18 and so mm, on. Yes, yeah.
1: absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, there, and the thing is, not everybody was accommodated in there. There were billets in private houses that had been requisitioned and evacuated all around the neighbourhood. I've met so many people who, who own houses around here and they go, my house was used as billets by Canadian pilots during the war, and I'm sort of like, yeah, your house and everyone else's house, <laughs> sweetheart. I'm going to leave you in the hands of Art Sager, who was a Canadian pilot with 421 Squadron in 1943. He worked for a university, he was an actor, he was a journalist, He what Art Sager didn't do don't bear thinking about anyway this is his arrival at Kenley and it's our officer's mess I thought I was in heaven when I woke up that first morning at Kenley opening my eyes I saw an angel leaning over me a beautiful angel with blue eyes she was saying sir sir your tea sir I reached up but she sprang away and I and flew out of the room It was a WAF Batswoman, a new one. This was her first day on duty. Unable to rouse me by knocking, she'd come right in with the morning tea. A delightful Kenley custom, but sadly the only time I was served it in bed. (laughs) There were other attractive features of Kenley. A Battle of Britain base in Surrey, 30 minutes by train from London. The officers' mess had a double lounge, one with a piano and the other with a bar, a huge dining room, a theatre for briefings, movies and concerts, a billiard room, gymnasium and squash court. The bedrooms in the main building and annex were single occupancy. And in addition to bringing the tea in the morning, a batswoman or batman shined your shoes if they were left outside overnight. The meals were plentiful and tasty. Porridge, sausage, kippers, frequently eggs for breakfast and dinners of pre-war variety. Nothing but the best for our fighter pilots on frontline service. The only drawback, a minor one, was the distance from mess to dispersals, forcing everyone to acquire a bicycle or motorbike. So, obviously, he he thought he was in the pink in there in 1943, and and he probably was. However, it wasn't all beer and skittles for these guys. This is something that comes up in a lot of memoirs. They arrive here, they've been stationed up north, or they've been at an operational training unit, and they arrive here and there's all these little hints that things aren't quite the same and, and things are getting a bit more serious. And Art also writes... We were immediately reminded, however, that we were on more active operations when briefed by the Wing Intelligence Officer on action to be taken if forced to bail out or crash land in enemy territory. We were photographed in civilian clothing for identity cards to be used if downed and evading capture and issued with escape kits containing silk map, phrasebook in four languages and survival supplies. We were also given a P-38 revolver to protect ourselves in emergencies not described. So, yeah, things got a lot more serious once the guys were here. Um, the yes. batswoman, the bats. Woman, the bat- yes, was that usual, or was no? That, it wasn't. Bat, bats women were, were a, I think, a bit of a peculiar Kenley, Kenley thing. thing. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of wafts working in the mess mm-hmm. all over the shop. And as I say, Flintfield House was the the Batmans quarters. I don't know where the bat women were billeted, but yes, it was a rather lovely. Place the mess, not anymore. But hopefully, it will return to its former glory. Do any pictures yeah, that yeah. exist of what it looked like? That—that's what it looked like only a few years ago. Believe it or not. Is that this view from this? No, operation? no, no. This, this is, the is from the, it's, it's, the from, it's from, it's from looking, looking the that way. I have another officers' mess story to tell you which involves another Canadian pilot, and this one's quite dear to my heart because my day job is as a costumier. And years ago, I worked on a film called Mrs Henderson Presents, which is about the windmill girls, and this is uh, an account of a visit by the windmill girls to Kenley, and it involves a guy called Thomas Carl Ibbotson, who was one of our Canadian pilots and it's written by Hugh Godfrey, our guy who was um, thrashing tr- or trying to thrash Johnny Johnson in the squash court <laughs> so we're in 1943 still about this time it was announced that the Windmill Girls of London would put on a show for us at the Station Theatre in spite of the bombing the Windmill Theatre had continued to put on its variety show the troupe had become a legend the British laws of censorship allowed women to appear on stage nude as long as they didn't move "'The windmill took full advantage of the privilege. "'Mindful of my experience at the Café de Paris, "'I chose a seat four or five rows back mid-stage. "'I was sitting beside Ibbotson. "'I hadn't gone to the show in London, "'being used to the crude striptease acts in Toronto. "'I had assumed that the windmill performance would be the same. "'To my great surprise, the show was faultless.' "'the skits full of light-hearted humour devoid of crude suggestion, "'and the women magnificent. (laughs) "'Scattered throughout the performance were turns "'in which the curtains parted to reveal these gorgeous women, "'totally nude and motionless, posing like Greek statuary. "'On one of these occasions a particularly beautiful blonde "'with a smooth, peachy complexion stood as the centrepiece. "'As the show progressed, Ibbotson beside me "'slid further and further down in his seat.' All that was visible from the front were two beady little eyes, standing as though on stems. Ibbotson was pitifully shy. He would rather have faced a dozen Messerschmitts than be left alone with a good-looking girl. (laughs) The show got half a dozen curtain calls, plenty of whistles, but none of the lewd remarks that I'd heard from audiences in Toronto. The troupe was invited to the mess afterwards for drinks. The girl who'd been the centrepiece was just as beautiful at close quarters as she'd been on the stage. She wore a silk print blouse, a tailored skirt and high-heeled spectator pumps that complemented her gorgeous legs. Ibbotson thought he couldn't stand it. He said he was going upstairs for a cold shower. But his <laughs> self-appointed protector, Westhaver, refused to allow it and got him a double scotch to quiet his nerves. By the time the second drink was cursing through his veins, he was malleable and we marched him up to meet her. She caught on at once and to the delight of the assembly began to tease him. Given a chance to talk to these girls at close quarters we quickly realised they were fine people. They were a dedicated group of professionals with social graces to equal their looks. Knowing the pilots I couldn't help but worry that somebody would make a suggestive remark. Nobody did. They were all on their best behaviour. The troop left as a body having earned the respect of everyone. Poor Ibbotson didn't have long to think about his blonde bombshell. A short time later, on a dark and rainy night, he died by the side of the road in the arms of his friend Westie. He had been crushed beneath his overturned jeep. This isn't quite true. Thomas Carl Ibbotson died after emergency surgery in 14 Canadian General Hospital near Redhill. He was stationed at Redhill at the time and he had a crash between Nutfield Ridge and the airfield. He took a corner too wide and an oncoming jeep ran into him. He was still alive. He died at 3am the following morning and Westhaver couldn't have been by the side of the road with him because he'd already been killed in action himself. Mm. Ibbotson was, by all accounts, he wasn't a reckless guy. He was very sensible and definitely officer calibre. He'd already graduated as a pharmacist before he even joined the Royal Canadian Air Force. And I've been through his training records and all of them attest to what a sensible and decent bloke he was. This is Thomas Carl Ibbotson. That photograph was found in his brother's logbook. His brother was also a pilot. And that was found in his brother's logbook.
2: (laughs) because was a very easy target
1: for the bombers to follow around. OK, I'm going to stop you all again. Kenley's original ops room was just in here. It was a single-storey sort of bungalow-type building with an earth revetment around it. I think people were always quite surprised about how vulnerable it was i think everyone was expecting a subterranean bunker and there was just this little one-story building there and we have got accounts of a visit by german dignitaries just before the outbreak of war and they showed them everything but luckily they didn't show them where that flipping ops room was but to explain the whole business of the ops room i'm going to leave you in the hands of joyce millard who was an rdf WAF We often talk about unsung heroes. I think those girls really were unsung heroes because I meet quite a lot of people who study these matters quite closely and they've never heard of them. Each station had three RDF little towers down towards the coast and around the coast that had equipment on which could triangulate by radio signals, the position of a pilot in distress. And they just used to sit there in these towers on farmland, on their own, listening for mayday calls. And they saved so many lives. And bless her, Joyce, who was one of Kenley's WAFs, wrote a book where she kind of traced through what had happened to all the pilots whose mayday calls she'd picked up when she was sitting in her tower. But here she is. This is her description of the ops room at Kenley. Since the outbreak of war in 1939, the Air Force, in its wisdom, had been acquiring premises in and around Kenley and many RAF staff were being housed in requisitioned civilian billets scattered over a wide area, a precautionary measure against possible loss of life of skilled personnel from air raids when concentrated in one place. A shop in the main Caterham shopping area was already being used as a mock operation room for training ops staff and this became temporary accommodation for Kenley Sector Ops Room while the more permanent premises of the Grange at Old Coulsdon were being suitably converted. It was from the temporary Caterham shop premises that RAF operations were controlled during the crucial months of August and September 1940 at the height of the Battle of Britain. Air Chief Marshal Dowding, Lord Beaverbrook and Winston Churchill were among those who visited at various times to observe firsthand the progress of the battle. Passers-by doing their shopping would have been very surprised had they known what was going on behind closed doors in Godston Road. (laughs) So on the 18th of August raid, the ops room wasn't hit But all the communications to it were knocked out except one phone line and they realised that they really had to do something about it and the situation couldn't continue so they moved over to the temporary one that they'd set up in the butcher shop in Godstone Road which was right over the GPO main telephone cable so it was easy for them to use that and then by December 1940 it was at the Grange in Coulsdon. There's a plaque up on the wall. There's a plaque on the wall at the shop in Godston Road, yes. So Joyce says, Some WAFs were being posted to direction-finding stations right away, but I was rather pleased to be staying and working at the Grange to learn a bit more about the ops room procedure. I reported for duty the next morning at 7.30 hours and became part of B crew. The ops room complex was spread over an area around Old Coulsdon. The nearby golf clubhouse had been commandeered and that was our mess, where we ate and where dances were held. There was a naffy within the golf course grounds and our billets were requisitioned private houses in an unmade up road alongside and overlooking the golf course. The orderly room was in Coulsdon Court Road and the whole establishment was known as Sea Camp. Things were looking up, I thought, as I got settled in. This was a vast improvement over life in huts on main camp and I could foresee many advantages, a lot more freedom for a start and not an admin queen bee in sight. As we were working shifts, including night duty, it was impractical to enforce any sort of curfew on us, all spread out in different houses, and there would be less disturbance for sleep after night duty than in a camp hut. We might even be able to have a lay-in on our day off, a perk not allowed in a hut where all the beds had to be made up and biscuits and bedding stacked for daily inspection. So her social life goes through the roof here. She remembers Canadian Army dances at Lingfield with transport provided there and back, the cider mill... And my verdict on the fairly potent brew they sold was pretty hot stuff. They were not supposed to sell to the Canadians, my diary informs me. And the Britannia Club in Croydon in 1943, I had a meal of pork sausages, new potatoes, fresh garden peas, followed by strawberries and cream, all for a bob. (laughs) <laughs> Great, that's amazing. the aptly named kit bag was another haunt. dances were often held at the golf club for Kenleyites and after one of these do's I was escorted home on a warm moonlit summer night by a Canadian called Bernard who wanted to show me the 19th hole on the golf course <laughs> being unfamiliar with that sport I didn't find out until much later that there were only 18 maybe that's why it took us until 3am to reach the door of my billet <laughs> oh dear bless her Joyce when did she have that meal? Because what, what date be, was that? That would be been 1943 or thereabouts. So what about rationing? I mean, that, what she's described a, there yes, sounds like a pretty reasonable meal to me. You know what, things you were buying in cafes and what have you... I think... There's a funny thing with rationing because if you had the money, you could you could you uh, live quite well. Yes, and there were things that weren't on ration and were on ration and blah. blah. it's all very complicated. I oh, no, used though. to reach out
3: in the West End and said yes. that restaurants weren't subject to rationing. Uh, no, and, you, and you could eat quite uh, yes. well. Yes,
1: well, you well, uh, could if you. She used I to
3: go to a curry know. house called Veraswamy's that's still there, yes. Yes. Um, off then Regent Street. And things
1: like seafood and stuff. There was very seafood that wasn't. Rationed or wasn't subject to any restriction. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Let's move on. Let's move on quickly before we end up walking right the car. This is a very, very unusual survivor here. This blast pen has its original central spine wall and it's the only one on the airfield that where that central spine wall is original. The one at the tribute was reconstructed a couple of years ago. There's been restoration work done on the brick work on this one and it hasn't been entirely successful but we are working on it. After extensive tests of mortar and brick work that I won't bore you with, it's all going to be redone next summer. So we're hopeful that we'll have a better result second time around than we have the first time around. I'm going back to Art Sega again, with this business of waiting for scrambles and sitting at dispersals and, and all of this stuff. Art oh, Sager said the waiting between briefing and take-off was the most edgy time, at least for the first shows, and to keep calm, you fussed over your kite with the fitter and rigger. Once you were in the air, you were too busy to be nervous. Ian Gleed, another famous ace of the Battle of Britain period, this isn't written about his time at Kenley. He was actually stationed at Kenley before the war. It was his first squadron, 46th squadron, here at Kenley, flying biplanes, bless him. And he wrote a book in, I think it was 1942, called A Rise to Conquer, which details his experiences during the Battle of Britain. And this is what he writes about that horrible, tense moment. He says, hello, ops. Yes. How many? Phew. Hells, bells. OK. Super readiness, boys. There are 120 plus. Jesus Christ. Let's go. The boys run to their planes and clamber into the cockpits. Flight, tell my crew to be ready to start up and see that everything is set for a damn quick takeoff. I'll stay by the phone. I lift the receiver. Hello, ops. A flight. Now at super readiness. Super readiness, by the way, is when they're actually sitting in the aircraft waiting for the phone call. They're not sort of like lounging around. They're they're actually sitting with the engines running. Hello, ops. A flight. Now at super readiness. How are the plots? They're coming now. I expect you'll be off shortly. I replace the receiver with mixed feelings. The sun seems very warm. I look out of the window. My plane is only about 50 yards away. The grass looks very green now. Oh, God, let us be lucky. I sit on the bed. The hut is empty. All the men are out by the plains. The black telephone looks like some evil genius. Why doesn't it ring? Please, God, don't let me get wounded. Hell, let's have some music. I give the gramophone a few cranks and pick up the first record on the pile. Little Sir Echo. The noise rather startles me. The tune conjures up a tea dance in Margate on my last leave. It's a damn good ballroom there and damn good cream cakes. Bring! Hello! Start up! Start up! I scream. Over the wire comes Patrol Portland, you're to fix the escort fighters. I slam the receiver down and run like hell. Ian Gleed was uh, shot down and killed over Tunisia in April 1943. (laughs) This is a Pickett Hamilton Fort, folks. Part of the airfield's defences and would have only been used if the airfield was under direct attack from troop transports or parachutists landing on the airfield. This little thing has a kind of hydraulic jack that raises it up and it has a, a slit that a weapon can be fired through. Obviously, you pretty much wouldn't want to be... No. down there um I'm going to go back to Hammond Innes and obviously this isn't a picket Hamilton Fort he was firing from it was probably a three inch gun but he says low to the south another raid coming in low to the south this is back to the hardest day again very low another raid coming the voice from gun ops sounded frightened and jerky how near I cut in very near came the answer I caught Langdon's arm and yelled the message into his ear. Stop, he shouted. Lay just over the hangar. Shrapnel, fuse two, load. The gun swung round, and then we heard the ominous sound, the whine of fast-flying aircraft low to the south. It grew in an instant to a roar that drowned the sounds above us. And then there they were, like magic, over the hangars. Strung out in a single line, they came fast and low, so low that I saw one of them lift his port wing to overtop the wireless mast by the main gates. They were not more than 30 feet above the barrack blocks as they laid their eggs. Wingtip to wingtip, they seemed to be. I saw the bombs cascade from beneath their fuselages. Sharply came Langdon's order Fire! Wow. And they would have come up from that way, obviously, right. with the hangers. Everybody had a good look. I mean, oh they so weren't particularly successful we because always they always world. flooded. And I think in 1942 or so, bomber command just said, please don't give us any more of these flipping <laughs> things. And they sort of went out of use. The fighter airfields usually had three. We know of two. So we've got one AWOL okay. at the moment. <laughs> uh, but it's very rare to find one still in its yeah. original position. Mm-hmm. So here... We all, we're all all here right now, yeah, aren't we? Marvellous. So. Yeah. This, here behind the fencing, if you want to come and have a quick look at it, it's a pair of upturned sewer pipes that caused a lot of consternation when they were first revealed. People thought they were part of a latrine system or something. Obviously, once they'd been emptied, it became obvious that it was a gun position that had you know, use what you've got. They had sewer pipes, they let them into the ground, put a gun mount in the bottom, one side for your observer and your ammunition, the other side for your gunner. So it probably would have had a Lewis gun mounted there. There are several of them around the airfield. There's this one over there. There's another two pairs of them over the other side of the airfield on Whiteleaf Bank as well. This is the first place we did archaeology a few years ago and there's a triangular picket point there that was revealed and a dispersal hut here or that we think it was probably an armoury or something. It has a concrete base here. There would have been a firing range over here. as well, very close to that house in fact. But they've always called this hut, the Canadian hut, and it always, you know, I always think, well, why? The whole station was Canadian from 1942 to when things shut down in 1944. So it was all Canadian. So I don't know why that one is particularly the Canadian hut. But anyway, I'm going to read you a bit from Flying Officer George Aitken's recollections. He was stationed here and flew with the Kenley Wing in 1943. Usually the routine was to prepare oneself, shaving, washing, getting dressed and then heading for the mess to partake of what breakfast had been made ready for us. Following breakfast, most of us might check to see if we had an email and then find those trusty bicycles each of us had. I would imagine the NCO pilots would have had a like routine as we might all meet up along the perimeter track and head for our dispersal area together. The maintenance personnel always seemed to beat us and some Spitfires had already been serviced. Of course, they were sleeping over here. Our intelligence officer, doctor and adjutant and on some occasions our padre would be with us at dispersal. Our May Wests, parachutes etc were all kept at the dispersal hut along with our flying helmet and face mask. We would tie on our May West fitting it to an oxygen container that was fitted for just such a test. Some of us might also check the parachutes making sure that the release pin in particular was not bent in any way that might cause a failure should one have to use it. When I was at Kenney, 403 carried out a number of different operational functions. Patrols, scrambles, patrols, flight scrambles, escorts, rodeos, sweeps, ramrods, high cover sorties and circuses. On any operation that might take the squadron over the channel, we would be briefed by the squadron leader in our dispersal. And it was then that we might find out who would be on what type of action and in what position we would fly in the flights. On patrols we would know before takeoff where we were to patrol, such as Beachy Head, etc. On all scramble activities, upon getting airborne, the controller would advise you where, when and what duty he wished the leader to proceed with. How were pilots assigned the various functions? A good question, and I think it was the squadron leader who chose who was to be in his section, and each of the flight commanders chose who would be in theirs, and what position they would fill. Number two, number three, number four... Since we usually had a full complement of pilots, it appeared to me that they did try and share the various functions fairly. Whilst I was keen to keep the same letter and serial number of the Spitfires I flew, I didn't always keep the position I flew in the flight. Also behind the dispersal hut was a place to take a nervous pee. (laughs) at dispersal before takeoff or if left behind i.e. not flying on the sortie we might play cards or chess write letters or catch up on sleep or if the weather was good take in the sunshine it might also be a time for some of us to get to know our ground crew who were just as keen as us to see the spitfire's return on one occasion i'd been left behind and i watched a perfect landing of an unmarked spitfire it didn't head for dispersal, but further along the perimeter track, a staff car seemed to be waiting for the pilot to shut down his engine. Before getting into the car, the pilot took off the helmet to reveal locks of blonde hair. She had flown in one of our replacement Spitfires, a lady member of the Air Transport Auxiliary. So that's George Aiken. He was from Alberta. He tried to get a job in a bank after graduating from school and was told he'd be wanted in the forces, so he applied to be a pilot instead of working in a bank. As for our female members of the Air Transport Auxiliary, one famous Kenley pilot who flew with the Air Transport Auxiliary was Anne Welsh. She became very, very famous for breaking the distance gliding record for ladies in 1961. And she is the lady who is very much responsible for setting up gliding at Lasham. I don't know anybody who does a lot of gliding is very familiar with Lasham. She describes her first flight in a Spitfire. The Spitfire's delight in flying gave me sheer pleasure. Some aeroplanes are harsh or reluctant, others without character, but the Spitfire was perfect, and when I came into the circuit at my destination, she floated back onto the ground like a feather. As I taxied in, two flights of Spitfires roared into the air to turn south in close formation for a low-level sweep over France. Maybe tomorrow mine would be with them. And then a tall Dutch pilot gave me a lift to the watch office on his motorbike. Life was completely wonderful. (laughs) famous photos of the raid on the 18th of August 1940 so you're standing about there Yes. Oh, um, uh, this is one awesome. of um, Rolf von Pebble's photos taken from the Dornier 17, okay. you can see the wing there, yeah, okay. um, so yeah that is about where you are standing now where that spitfire is along this side of the airfield We had a parachute and cable system, which was another one of these sort of like improvised weapons adapted from a naval system that fired a steel cable into the air with a little parachute at the top. If it caught anything, another parachute would be deployed at the bottom. And you hoped that the steel cable being wrapped around the wing, the propeller or anything that it clung on to would be enough to bring down your aircraft. Obviously, this is quite a botched together system, and the Navy didn't like it because out at sea it blew back onto the ships and was a complete disaster. Mm -hmm. So they brought it in for airfield use instead. And um, obviously, you're not going to catch anything high in that. It's going to be for low-level flying only. And the, the Dorniers that came over here, they had a new bomb the fuse on the bombs that they were carrying was set to detonate at 50 feet okay 50 feet they came in so low that a lot of their bombs didn't detonate because they were too low and they just skittered about on the airfield Stan Ford who I don't know whether some of you got a chance to chat to him on the 18th of August for the fly past he visited he's a hundred this year he was here for the hardest day yes exactly he remembered seeing the dawnies coming over and seeing all these bombs skittering around on the airfield and he just thought to himself well, if one comes towards me, I'll jump over it. (laughs) And he he looks back on it and says, oh, we must have been completely nuts. But that was his only thing. He just thought, oh, oh, if it comes my way, I'm I'm just going to jump over it and that's that. So it's an absolutely extraordinary raid. I'm going to read you a little bit more from Hammond Innes, which again has got another weird little parallel between the 18th of August raid. And then the first plane was upon us. At point-blank range Langdon gave the order to fire in the desperate hope that we should score a direct hit. I suppose we missed. At any rate, it swept unfalteringly over us, its great wingspan casting a shadow over the pit that seemed to me like the shadow of death. I could see the pilot sitting woodenly in his cockpit. I saw his teeth bared and thought it must take nerve to do what he was doing. As it swept past, a little line of jumping sand ran across the top of the parapet. The rear gunner was firing at us. I ducked, but just before I ducked, I saw the bofus on our side of the drone open up and fire on the plane. Its little flaming oranges streamed towards it, and then one hit and another bursting along the fuselage. The great plane staggered and then crumpled up and plunged towards the earth. I didn't see it crash. By this time, the next plane was over us, and the rear gunner was pumping a stream of bullets into the pit. One of the nine Dornias was hit by a Bofors shell and it was the first one across the airfield. So I'm wondering whether this is the Dornia that he's describing. It was the one piloted by Lamberty and Hauptman Joachim Roth was on board. He was actually the navigator and the leader of the whole sortie. So that is the one It got hit through the wing by a Bofors shell. And uh, it went through the fuel tank and started a fire. And they were in dire straits. They managed to get as far as Leaves Green, very crippled, where the Home Guard took credit for bringing them down. With, uh, they, were, they were doing rifle practice. They had newly issued rifles, and they all opened rapid fire on this flipping Dornier and took credit. For, for bringing it down although we have testimony from the people on board the aircraft at the time who were taken prisoner of war afterwards that they didn't even notice by that point they were all desperately trying to bail out Two of them bailed out and got very, very badly injured because they were so low. The third guy saw what had happened and pulled the ripcord literally as he was more or less standing in the doorway of the the escape hatch of the Dornier and he only sustained minor injuries to his hand. Lamberty and Roth stayed with the aircraft, crash-landed at Leaves Green, were very badly burnt and taken prisoner of war. As for our parachute and cable system, that brought down another Dornier which crashed into a cottage at the back there called Sunnycroft. I don't know Is some that of the you one in it. yeah. No, it's in Gulf Road. It's just here, at the end of Gulf Road. Oh, okay. And all five members of that crew were killed.
2: And of course, later on, we had the balloon holding the cables up. Yes, Mm.
1: yes, yes. And Johnny Kent, who we spoke about earlier, the guy who was saying uh, he wondered what would have happened if our pilots had been trained properly in air gunnery, Mm. he, before the war, he was the guy that did all the test flights on hitting balloon cables and what could be done to the aircraft to counteract hitting a balloon cable... How he survived that, mm-hmm. I shall never know. But I think, did he get the Air Force Cross for that? I'm not <laughs> sure. He did get honoured yeah. for that work in itself. And I mean, oh. the courage of the man to just go like yeah. fly into mm-hmm. balloon cables repeatedly just doesn't bear thinking yeah. about. No. And they did develop a little thing where the, a little shot fired if the, it would if the cable went into a, a, a divot in the front of the wing, it would kind of fire a bolt that would cut the cable, mm-hmm. and um, it did work. Mm. Uh, But that was all all tested by Johnny Ken. Mm. Anyway, we shall move on.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Are we
1: all here? Obviously, here we are. We're back at the tribute. This is our tribute to the servicemen and women who served at Kenley. It's not a memorial as such. It doesn't list any names. It lists the squadron numbers and where they came from and it commemorates everybody that served here. And I suppose, as we're sort of just doing World War II today, I'm going to finish with what was going on here on D-Day. By the 6th of June 1944, Kenley was really a backwater. Our last fighter squadrons had left... Sort of between the 18th and the 20th of April 1944, they'd flown out, and they were all down at Tangmere awaiting the call that D-Day was going to happen. So I'm going to read a few little bits from 403 Squadron's diary, their operations record book. RAF operations record books can be quite dry affairs, but the Canadian ones are quite personal. Sunday, 4th of June, 1944... The big day must really be at hand because we woke up this morning to find that all of our kites had been painted with black and white stripes. No flying at all today, but we did have a gen talk by the intelligence officer pertaining to D-Day. Monday 5th June 1944. We certainly feel that great happenings are in the offing as tonight we are all confined to camp and sure enough we all attended a gen session with all the pilots of 126 or 127 airfields at the Mess at 126. The long-awaited big day is here at last. And then Tuesday 6th of June 1944, D-Day. At about 6.30 hours this morning, the wing, including our squadron, was on its way. And what a show. It was almost beyond description. Boats of all shapes and sizes, destroyers standing off from the shore and pounding away at hun positions and giving covering fire for the landings. Our second show at 12 o'clock was quite uneventful. No huns were seen and our landing forces seemed to have made very definite progress. Those guys had been stationed here for more or less the whole of 1943. And there they were, they were at Tangmere. They obviously went to the advanced landing grounds in France after that and continued the chase through Europe. This is the last set of stuff that I'm going to read you, and I don't know who wrote it. It was Kenley's station commander during June 1944... I don't know what his name is. I've got his signature on the flipping document and I can't read it and it's so frustrating. I'm just going to read it because it, is, it cracks me up every time I read it. But it—and it's, it's very funny. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, I'll let you make your own mind up. 6th of June, 1944. Known officially as D-Day, on this Tuesday was launched the invasion of Europe from the West. Evidence of abnormal activity was provided by the almost ceaseless passage of large numbers of aircraft over the aerodrome throughout the day. So we've got this. He's completely detached from the action now. They're just sitting here cleaning up the airfield after all the action that's happened in the previous years. And they're watching it all go by. However, they've got a new menace to deal with. 15th of the 6th, 44. At about 23.58 hours, the first flying bomb was introduced into this neighbourhood. 16th of the 6.44. Flying bombs, or Bugs Doodle, continued to pass over or prang into the surrounding districts. By the end of the day, the bits and pieces being brought into the station gave rise to hopes by the salvage section that all previous records for scrap metal might be exceeded. (laughs) 22nd of the 6.44. 500 personnel of 5351 Airfield Construction Wing arrived for the purpose of installing balloon sites, followed by personnel of the RAF Construction Company, Royal Corps of Signals. 23rd of the six hundred forty four. Station flight Biggin Hill arrived on attachment on account of encroachment of balloon barrage on that station. It may not be out of place to record here that the news that our famous and much-advertised neighbour had been afflicted with a new type of pest known as the balloonatic and that it had fallen from its pinnacle to the low level of a balloon centre was received on this station with ill-concealed humour. This humour was mystic and snarkish in the manner of its disappearance for on 24th of the 6th 44, a laconic signal announcing the limits of the balloon barrage was received from higher authority on this unit. An equally laconic plotting of the coordinates on the map by the CO served to quicken considerably our interest when it became horribly clear that we also were to be engulfed by the surging tide of jelly bags. <laughs> At about 18.45 on this fatal Saturday the first of an incredible number of these monstrosities ascended lousily into the sky in a position uncomfortably near the officer's mess and by the end of Sunday the 25th 6.44 the ambient air was bespattered with a bevy of bloated bladders which floated with bovine content and cat-like detachment in the heavens. As a result of this bladder disease, station flight Biggin Hill moved to Red Hill and 1004SWHQ to Gatwick. At approximately 9-10 hours, a flying bomb pranged among requisitioned properties just south of the camp, doing considerable damage to houses and rendering the camp cinema unserviceable. The history of this unit for the remainder of the month consists of bladders, bladders and still more bladders. Surely never since that long-forgotten dawn which revealed for the first time the existence of the North and South Downs can so evil a blight have settled over the southeast counties. <laughs> and that is the last wartime entry in Kenley's station diary.
0: Thank you for listening to the Through Time podcast. And many, many thanks to the Kenley Revival team for their enthusiasm and assistance. And can I also point you towards their fascinating website, kenleyrevival.org, where you can find details of forthcoming events that they run and other walking tours.